This episode of Pick Up the Six podcast is brought to you by Everyman Jack. If you haven't heard of them, they're a men's grooming company that creates some of the highest performing, best smelling products on the market. They believe it's not just about what you put in your body that matters, but what you put on your body from their body wash to deodorant to beard oil and more. They're made with naturally derived ingredients and incredibly outdoorsy scents that bring the best of nature to their bottles and bars. I'm a huge fan of all their stuff. The sandalwood scent, probably my favorite of all the things they have. And it's literally in my shower right now. So here's what you do. Head to everymanjack.com today and use our special promo code PUT6, PUT and the number six for 25% off on orders of 50 bucks or more, making small changes to your routine, even in the shower, can have a significant impact. And Everyman Jack makes that easy. Everyman Jack, naturally derived, outdoor inspired. We're also sponsored by Amino Vitals. Amino Vitals' mission is to provide the highest quality of amino acid-based nutritional products to all athletes aspiring to improve their conditioning and performance. The BCAAs, Glutamine and arginine help replenish the body's muscle proteins and jumpstart the recovery process. I've been using Amino Vital since last fall, got introduced to them, and I see a positive impact from their action and recovery products. It helps me just get rid of some of those, you know, aches and pains that come with a tough workout. Hit up amino-vital.com, use the code PUT6 at checkout and save 20% or just click on their link on the show page and save today. Wounded a third time and unable to walk, he steadfastly remained in the dangerously exposed area, deploying his men to more tenable positions and supervising the evacuation of casualties. Only when assured the safety of his men did he allow himself to be evacuated. On May 2nd, 1968, then Captain James Livingston and his Marine company moved through an open rice paddy while taking heavy fire from the enemy in an effort to help another stranded group of Marines. His actions on that day in Vietnam earned now retired Major General Livingston, our nation's highest honor for military service, the Medal of Honor. Today, we meet General Livingston and hear his story on this episode of Pick Up the Six podcast. Brian Jodis back once again for another episode of Pick Up the Six podcast. Major General James Livingston, a pleasure to have you on the show today. It's a pleasure to be here in Simplify, and uh, I'm looking forward to the interview. Yes, sir. Uh, that's a Marine man on the other line there and was awarded the Medal of Honor uh, after heroic acts in 1968. We're going to talk about that, but let's get to know James Livingston and his path to the military, and I know it includes time at North Georgia College and State University and then transferring on, but it seemed like you were destined uh, to wear the nation's uniform. Is that a fair assessment? I grew up down in McCray, Georgia. Had a very little uh, background in terms of my family in the military, except for an uncle I richly admired, who was with the 82nd Airborne in World War II. Got a couple of combat jumps on his back, and I grew up on a farm. And you know, a small high school, 26 in my high school, and I went on uh, under the direction of my mom, and who was a real driver, and my dad, who was a pretty good driver, and. They sent me off to North Georgia College up in Atlanta, Georgia, for a year. And uh, I always wanted to be an engineer, and uh, mathematics was sort of my things. So North Georgia College did now for an uh, engineering degree. So I uh, 
decided to look at Georgia Tech and Auburn, and I went to Auburn University, and they had all the good-looking girls, so I transferred to Auburn. <laughs> the War Eagle got him, got him over. It's a good reason. War Eagle got me. It's a good reason. Yeah. Uh, there was only 12 girls at Georgia Tech, so, you know, it was a pretty easy choice. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, well, if you're doing easy math like that, I could understand why that would uh, have an impact on a young man. Yeah. That, Things he might be interested well, that, in. That showed, yeah, that showed the strength of my mathematics. <laughs> Fair assessment. Uh, when were you at Auburn? When did you graduate? Well, I graduated. I went to Auburn in 1958 and when it was called Alabama Polytechnic Institute. And it was uh, redesignated as Auburn, I think, in 1960. And so I graduated from Auburn in 62. But uh, of consequence in this conversation, I got my draft notice in 61. And so I was being drafted in the... Uh, military, uh, as soon as I graduated from Auburn, you could get deferred, but I could, could continue, you know, going to school and been totally deferred, but I thought I owed my great country something. So I decided to respond to my draft notice and, uh, uh, this good friend of mine sent off, uh, give me a card and I sent it off to the officer selection officer in Birmingham, Alabama. And he showed up at the student unit, a good looking Marine major, about six four, all leany bean, and looking good in that uniform. And I didn't know a damn thing about the Marine Corps, but I said I liked that uniform. And so we uh, started conversation. And uh, he says, uh, "Young man, I'll take good care of you. We'll send you off to Quantico, and you could do both summers of officer of uh, officer school. And one summer, since you miss the summer that's normally programmed between your sophomore and junior year, this was my junior year." And I said, oh, yeah, what are you going to give me? He said, we'll get you in good shape. We'll give you all the beer you can drink. And I said, that sounds good. <laughs> good deal. Uh, well, that's a heck of a sales pitch. Um, it's the girls that yeah. get you to Auburn. It's the good-looking uniform and all the beer you can drink and get you in shape to get you in the Marines. Uh, things start sort of stacking up. But at the same time, you know, there's big things happening in the world, right? And this thing in Vietnam yeah. really takes shape. And so, obviously, you're drafted in, so you know that there's going to be action what were your thoughts as a young man being drafted right settling with the marines but knowing what was inevitably coming with which was a path to vietnam well you know vietnam would really 61 62 would really crank it up what it cranked up during that time frame about 62 and three when i was getting out of the basic school which was my next phase of training after graduating from all was the cuban missile crisis mm -hmm. and uh, what happened was my basic school uh uh, they taken all the equipment and activated a new regiment, but also our unit, our basic class was to be designated as the first group of replacement lieutenants for the Cuban Missile Crisis. So uh, Vietnam hadn't really cranked up, so we were looking at Cuba about, at mm. that time with JFK with the president and uh, and what was going on just south of, the, south of Florida more than we were in Vietnam. So what point does the Vietnam thing become reality? And when, when do you guys and your well, units find out you're headed there? I, I think uh, after I got out of basic school, I went to the FMF and it began to crank up. And I remember there was a TV program called The Lieutenants. It was filmed out in a, a place in uh, uh, California. And so that sort of began to wrap into the notion of uh, Vietnam is happening. And so in 63 and 64, I joined the Secretary of 5th Marines. And we went overseas as a transplacement battalion, became 3rd Battalion, 3rd Marines, and uh, stayed around Okinawa and sailed around uh, South China Sea until probably about uh, October, November of that year, if I recall. And uh, then they put us off the shore 
uh, of Vietnam, and uh, our per- participants was primarily just driving a circle around the ocean next to the thing. But uh, I got ashore a little bit to observe, and some of the other guys got ashore. But we went in not as a unit, but as observers working with some advisors and with the Vietnamese. And the war was just beginning to uh, bubble up a little bit, primarily just VC action. And uh, there was a helicopter bringing helicopter unit in there. So it, it was nothing of a major consequence to stop the, the Viet Cong. And the way you got your combat paid back in those days for the guys, they'd shoot at the mailbox a little bit in, in Da Nang, and that was uh, implied they were in a combat zone. So it, it was not a very heated heated uh, operation at that particular time in our history in Vietnam. Mm. But then it does get cranking. Uh, I think it's 1967. It yeah, that's an understatement, I'm sure. Um, and well, it so, cranked up before then, you know, about 64, 65, they had Operation Starlight, which was one of the biggest battles of the war right at the beginning. And uh, it was around July down in that area. And uh, that's when the Marine Corps got more involved in the thing, began to bubble. And the time I got back in 67, 68, we had moved from what I call uh, a guerrilla warfare in part because the North Vietnamese had been introduced in major combat units. So the complexion of the war uh, in 67, when I was there, really began to transition and transition significantly from a low-level guerrilla war to a, to a major operation against North Vietnamese units. And it manifested itself at the end as far as my experiences in May of 68, which is the fight we'll talk about here a little bit later. Yeah, so you're in with the 3rd Marine Division, going in 67, but so nine months later, right, May 2nd, 1968, yeah. as you're heading in that heavily fortified village of Dado, if I say that correctly, sir, is that right? Dado, yeah. Dado, mm-hmm. yeah. So tell me about, you know, what, in, in your journey, and you've had an incredible career that spans all the way to 1995, I mean, a major general in the United States Marine Corps, I mean, amazing uh, moments along the way, but for you, this is a pivotal and marquee moment that ultimately ends in the awarding of our nation's military's most highest honor, that Medal of Honor. So, do you mind just telling me what happens on that May second of nineteen sixty-eight? Well, uh, basically, uh, I joined the Second Battalion, Fourth Marines, in sixty-seven, as you talked about, and uh, we were blessed that we uh, had a chance to pick up my company and build it, and the thread sort of incrementally increase. Uh, by the time we got to Dido, we had gone through the VC, we'd gone through the VC, EVA sort of combination, and worked primarily up in I-Corps, where I-Corps is the more northern province of old uh, South Vietnam. It lies sort of between the, the Ben Hai River and the Quaviet uh, River down in that area, and it was a, a great area for access for the North Vietnamese, but they could also put their artillery in close range of us and we were restricted except by uh, counterfires and aircraft to take it out. So that was sort of the situation up in there. And uh, we had uh, moved from uh, being just a standard infantry battalion to call what is called a special landing force battalion, which means we had all the attachments, such as artillery tanks and all that associated with us. And uh, and uh, probably uh, I was just trying to remember dates, probably around... Uh, April, early April, Quezon was having a lot of trouble, so they put us over at Camp Carroll, which is not too far from Quezon, and I was a reaction company. If the NVA had been overrunning Quezon, I was going to be the first guy in with my company to reinforce Quezon. 
we had helicopters and all that stuff. But we went through that operation, and finally, uh, we were designated as SLF Special Landing Force. We went to Subic Bay Rehab, came back, and we we landed very quickly when we got back north of the Quaviac, in between the Ben High. And uh, another battalion of Marines had been very uh, actively engaged, had been pretty beat up. And so they threw us in there. We operated around that area for a significant period, and meaning significant was 30 days. But what happened to me ultimately, uh, the threat began to manifest itself all across what we call the DMZ, all the outposts, Kaysan, all those places. And there was a strategic bridge uh, across Route 1, right next to, uh, across the Quaviet, right next to Don Ha. And Don Ha was the major logistics base for the Marine Corps for all those locations up in that area. And it was also headquarters for the 3rd Marine Division and all our artillery support. So a very strategic, probably the most strategic base, other than Quezon, probably in that whole part of the world, because that's where all the Marine supplies and a great deal of the Army supplies came through there. And what they would do is they would download uh, ships at sea and they would float them up on small landing craft to Don Ha, uh, the supplies on the small landing craft, and float them up to Don Ha and all, unload them and distribute them to all the operational units up in that area. But what happened well, to one of those landing craft, it was loaded with supplies and uh, also a couple that were hard to provide protection. Uh, a North Vietnamese soldier uh, took one of them under fire. But before then, just drop it back, and they had detached me from my battalion, Secretary of Fourth Marines, and they placed me across that strategic bridge right next to Dong Ha. They crossed the Quaviet River, and the history of that bridge is the same bridge that John Ripley blew up later in the war. I think it was mm-hmm. about 73, and where mm-hmm. John got the Navy cross, that was the same bridge. Mm-hmm. And so that was the security for that bridge. And uh, when this shot took place, uh, they ships, they, they activated the residual elements of Secretary and 4th Marines, and that pushed them down to where that took place to sort of begin to sort of explore what was going on. And the more they explored, the more bad guys they found. And uh, the golf company was there, hotel company was there, Fox Rock company was there, and uh, Jim Williams had hotel company. Jim got hit with hand grenades and uh, had to be medevaced. And we... Solely because of the way the concept worked out, no one knew the intel, and no one could believe the threat existed the way it did. The battalion was sort of piecemealed into that operation, and as a consequence, the company slowly got bogged down, hmm. and uh, Goff Company got bogged down in the edge of Dido after an attempt to take out. But even before that, they brought in another company called Alpha One Three, Alpha Company One, first battalion, first and third Marines. Hmm. And they tried to take Don Kong, and they just got claimed. The clock came out of the kill. They also got killed, and they withdrew it and left a lot of unfortunate kids on the battlefield there. But the decision was made after Goff Company coming in to try to help them out to detach me from my job as being bridge security for that bridge and bring me down and join the battalion headquarters and the residual elements of 1st Battalion, 3rd Marines which I helped sort of put the company back together. And after we got in position and the golf company being turned, 
that are tied down and really taking a lot of income in that night, the battalion commander decided for me to go and our echo company, my company was echo going to the attack the next morning. Are you with me? Yes, sir. I'm with you. No. And that's my, that, that was my question. I'm with you. I'm tracking you all the way. Yeah. I, I'm hearing golf company basically bogged down. You've now been placed. Bogged, right? Golf company bogged down. Other companies are not really available. Sure. And, uh, so, uh, the tank commander, I was in his proximity, called me up about three o'clock and said, you going into the attack the next morning. Yep. And the reason that the place where we would attack is the same going across the same rice paddy, about 500 yards of open rice paddy. There's nothing there except a few graves. Yeah. That was going to say, can you paint the picture for us as to going on the attack, right? Going on the aggressive to go. Yeah. yeah, What's that look like? Where are you going? Well, we're fixing to go on the attack, and uh, my operations order was to leave the uh, the location where we were at, where the battalion headquarters, cross the same rice paddy that Apple One Three had failed to seize Dado. So, Anlac, uh, the little town uh, or little village, was about 500 yards from Dado. Golf companies in the right hand side of Dado tied down. And so we had very little intel, so, but it, I issued the order after receiving the battalion's commander's order and uh, issued all the orders necessary to get my company in position. It's what they call the far edge of the battle area. And uh, at five o'clock, we were due to attack. So I told uh, Echo Company, uh, guys, uh, we have been practicing this for nine months. We've gone from the VC. We're now in the NFL. And we got a lot of bad guys down there, but we didn't have any good intel except for Jay Vargas, who was the other recipient of the Medal of Honor in this battle, and he fed me what he could. And we were aware that he was really tied down, and his company had been beat up somewhat. So 5 o'clock in the morning, I said, fix bayonets. I figured this is the time if we had to uh, we had to go off across 500 meters and had to engage guys in bunkers. We had to have all the adrenaline we got to pump up. And so that was a means of pumping the adrenaline up. So we moved out two platoons up and me back with a reserve platoon. And uh, as we closed on Dido and uh, Vargas was evidence, we were shooting everything we could shoot in that village. Uh, uh, our Echo Company began to get tied down my two forward platoons. Uh, because we were very close to Dido, but we couldn't figure out what was happening. Oh, these guys were in bunkers, mm-hmm. and they were wait till you get very close to them, and they were killing all my Marines by shooting them in the head because of the way these bunkers were designed. How many? I mean, so, a bunch uh, of them, right? Well, like a hundred bunkers? Yeah, about there were a hundred bunkers there, now, wow. probably more than that. And uh, what happened uh, after that? I saw they were getting tied down, so I took the reserve to them. And I guess uh, me and my CP sort of led the point on that. It wasn't too damn smart being a, a company commander with all these radio antennas around you, but it's time to do what you got to do. And we, uh, with the help of the reserve platoon, managed to penetrate the bunker complex, which is the classic way you do that. What you do is you penetrate the bunker complex, then you start to spread the bunkers out and hit them from the flank, vessel from the front. So when we penetrated, I was able to flow a lot of Marines in there, and we began to hit right and left, and we've been to roll the bunkers up. And about, uh, I took, I guess it took us about 30 minutes to roll all those bunkers up, and it was a slug fest. 
believe me, you me. Uh, and uh, when it was over, I went in there with 185 Marines, and only 35 of them walked away from that part of the fight. But we cleaned those bunkers out, killed a lot of bad guys, linked up with Golf Company, and consolidated our position with Golf Company, and uh, awaited whatever the next requirement was. But I didn't have many people left for the next requirement. But what happened was the uh, regimental commander got a call from the division commander and said, you guys continue to attack. And obviously, uh, General Weiss, who was the battalion commander, wonderful man, wonderful man. Uh, you, I didn't have a manpower. The golf company was pretty well beat down. The only residual company close by was Hotel Company, uh, Secretary of Fort Prince. And they were led by a couple of young lieutenants, Scotty Prescott and Vic Taylor. Uh, so they came around my left flank uh, and sort of bypassed the residual elements of Goff and Echo and went into the attack. And when they went into the attack, they got about a couple of hundred yards from where I was located, and they were getting surrounded. So uh, I said to hell with it. I said, guys, uh, at Echo, uh, we got our buddies in the hotel fixed to get wiped out, and they were fixed to get wiped out. Mm-hmm. I mean, there was that many bad guys in that damn place. And I said, hell, we're going to join them. If you want to go with me, fine, I'm going. All 35 of these Marines picked up, and we ran up and joined those guys. And it was for about 45 minutes. I mean, it was the damnedest thing you ever saw. The number of uh, North Vietnamese and what the killing was going on. And it was it was pretty close and stuff. I won't try to describe how nasty it was, but it was nasty. And uh, we kept pushing them back. And I'll tell you the end of the story what what the reason the problem was but we kept pushing them back and pushed them back and finally they just hit us with too much and they shot me in the leg and i'd been shrapnelized and had an ak across the forehead so i went down and when uh maybe in the same arena went down i called the battalion commander and said you know i, I can't guarantee we're not going to be overrun I'm, I'm down and so i told the marines to get the hell out of there and i'll cover for them but a couple of them drug me back i guess God was with me, and uh, it was it was. If you ever heard the term "the killing fields," it was the killing fields. We were running out of ammunition, and they got yeah, it got it got to be the nasty stuff. But we were able to get all the Marines back, and they drug me back, and that was sort of my end of the day in the action. And uh, I, along with a a lot of other Marines who were medevac, we had. 82 killed in that battle had 297 medevacs and about 167 who were wounded, but not medevacs, not because of just the significance of the numbers, you know. And uh, Echo and all the people did a magnificent job. They kicked ass, and uh, they were 10,000, turned out they were 10,000 North Vietnamese in that damn village with a VC company acting as guides. Wow. And uh, they brought in, the bull, brought in the bulldozers later and buried a lot of them. Wow. But the, uh, the the end of the story is the village, I didn't realize it was that short and it was running down. And we had all of those guys boxed up in the northern end of that village that were still alive. And uh, we were fixing to push them out in the open where the airplanes and the artillery could wipe them out. So they were fighting for their life in larger numbers than we were. And we were fighting for our life to try to kick their ass, obviously. And uh, it was a, it was a slugfest. And it was a. Uh, you can you can look at Korea, you can look at uh, Vietnam, you can look at uh, anything we've ever fought in the Marine Corps. That battle was just as significant 
And if we had lost that fight, if Dido, not Dido, but Don Kong had been taken the big supply base and the third Marine division uh, headquarters had been lost, these guys, that would have been just more significant probably than the Battle of Way City because that's where all the supplies and all the brain power was for the third Marine division. And uh, it, the war might have ended there if we had lost that fight. So 800 Marines against 10,000 down north Vietnamese and uh, that kind of fight, uh, it had got the publicity, but probably in terms of consequence, yeah, it was one of the most consequential, consequential battles of the Vietnam War. And, uh, you know, and, and Echo and all the magnificent battles were absolutely magnificent. We had Army, we had Army helicopter pilots, we had all kind of fixed wing, we had naval gunfire, the Newport News, artillery galore, and supporting arms in contrast to what's going on in the Marine Corps. We wouldn't have survived if that been for all the supporting arms. Mm. The artillery, the tankers, all those people were magnificent. And so uh, the next, uh, they continued to fight to, after I left with the residual elements and Suddenly that next night, the damn North Vietnamese got the hell out. They slipped out of there and left. Hmm. So uh, they left a lot of dead bodies. But I tell you, uh, the Marines kicked their ass. And uh, uh, 800 up against 10,000, I always say it's pretty damn fair fight for the Marines. Yeah, give them a challenge, right? Let me, um, I want to uh, read, I want to read part of your citation if that's okay. And I, I've got one more question on this, but I would, I do want to talk about a couple of other things while I've got you, but the little bit of time we have left Sure. and it reads wounded no a problem. third. Yeah. Yes, sir. Wounded a third time and unable to walk. He steadfastly remained in the dangerously exposed area, deploying his men to more tenable positions and supervising the evacuation of casualties. Only when assured the safety of his men, did he allow himself to be evacuated. Did you think it at some point it has to cross your mind? I'm not coming out of here. Well, it, you know, it never crossed my mind. It, what crossed my mind is I got a responsibility. And uh, mm-hmm. I always said I had two jobs, two jobs in the Marine Corps when I got into combat. One was to win the fight. The second one was to bring them home. And what I emphasized in that last action as far as I was concerned, was the bring them home piece. And I took that consequence or that responsibility very personal. Uh, And that was my emphasis there and uh, staying there and making sure I brought as many of those young Marines home as I possibly can because I really wanted them to have a chance in their life being fathers and grandfathers. Amazing. So that's an incredibly significant day. I mean, you talk about just the importance of that battle for what really, I mean, yeah. could have reshaped the war fast forward, right. To 1975. And you're also a part of the evacuation of Saigon, which is a huge moment and a moment, not just in your career, but just a big moment. In all things. Tell us a little bit about that too. Well, uh, I went, was, uh, sent over to be the, uh, the operations officer for the fourth Marine, uh, fourth Marine uh, regiment. And uh, I got a call and been on the island. My wife said, by the way, when you, you're you going over back to Okinawa, you're not going back to Vietnam. I said, no, hell, the damn war's over. Basically for me, and they, I mean, they're going to put me on Okinawa and I'm going to be the regimental operations officer. And I was there for about two weeks and the division commander called me up. They didn't go to the regimental commander and said, hey, Livingston, I know you. You're going south aboard the Blue Ridge, which was a big command ship, because at some point, I think we're going to have to get out of Vietnam. So uh, he was aware of my operational background. So he sent me down and 
I began to get involved with the Marines aboard the Blue Ridge, the major command ship, and we planned, began planning for the evacuation of Vietnam, Cambodia, and all those areas down in there. And we did initially uh, when the uh, North Vietnamese come spilling across the border and were pushing the South Vietnamese back. We did what is called the REN evacuation, which meaning we started in the thing, began pulling Vietnamese and Vietnamese residual military forces out of Vietnam. And this thing continued in the next phase of the operation because of the quickness of how the North Vietnamese were rolling the, the South Vietnamese up. And by the way, the, the Vietnamese Marines fought to the death, basically. Mm-hmm. So I'm proud of calling them brother Marines. Mm-hmm. And, uh, they uh, began to roll them up so fast. They initially did the evacuation of Cambodia, which is called Eagle Pool. And uh, I was off the coast of uh, of uh, South Vietnam, down around Bung Town Peninsula in Saigon, in that area. We had all kind of uh, uh, ways to back people and get them out of there. But uh, we were having trouble with uh, working with the uh, in-country uh, civilians, primarily at the embassy. So we were sort of planning for this evacuation the consequence is compared to the one in Afghanistan behind the scenes and a lot of behind the scenes preparation, smart Marines doing smart things. They know the fight was coming and they were going to have to do something. So they were smart about it and they had every option in the world we did that you could execute to pull people out of Cambodia and uh, pull people out of Vietnam. So I forget the exact date, but uh, finally uh, I got caught in country, meaning I was in Saigon and helped sort of set that up. And uh, General Kerry was the MAP commander, Marine Amphibious Brigade commander. Al Gray, who later became the commandant, was a regimental commander. Had wonderful people there, great leaders, great Marines. And by the way, the battalion there that would be providing security was the second battalion, fourth Marines, my old battalion from 68, mm-hmm. which was sort of ironic. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and I got caught in country and uh, and uh, didn't know exactly what was going on, but they began to steer me in there, and I walked into uh, the headquarters there at McVee next to Tonsonuk. And uh, I was aware of all the aspects of this operation since I'd planned a lot of it. And uh, some Army general handed me, uh, or I think it was an Army general, handed me a message that said, execute Operation Frequent Wind. And uh, he said, I know you from the uh, unit afloat. You guys have a responsibility. So I got General Gray, again, Colonel Gray on the phone, and I said, you know, they're, I just got this message, and they've got it too. said, execute frequent win. The ambassador didn't want to go, but they sort of had to push him aside a little bit. And uh, we had to get the hell out of there because we were not going to be able to withstand that. So we uh, executed the plan based on our planning. And it went spectacular, I'll tell you. The Marine helicopter pilots, the Air Force helicopter pilots, all those people, and the some of those pilots flew in for 18 hours getting people out of Saigon. And uh, we got everyone out except two dead Marines, and which uh, is another story. I won't get into that. But we got everyone out of there. We got, I think, about 150,000 Vietnamese out of there. We probably pushed a couple of hundred helicopters uh, meaning Vietnamese helicopters as they land on the Navy ships, push them in the drink. So, but the operation went spectacular, contrary to what you saw in Afghanistan 
Uh, we lost no Marines except two pilots that went down because they had a malfunction in their helicopter. So mm. there was no loss of life except those two that we left. They got killed by the rocket and the two pilots that went in. So it was a, it was a great, what I call Marine amphibious uh, brigade uh, operation. It couldn't have went on better. We couldn't have had better leaders than General Curry and General Gray, but we couldn't have had better Marines in the second and the 2nd Battalion, 4th Marines, the Magnificent Bastards, and all those great guys flying those helicopters. The heroes of the day mm. were the helicopter guys, yeah. and I'll give it to them. Those guys were magnificent. Yeah. So it concluded, and we uh, finally concluded the operation, and we went to Subic Bay, and as I mentioned, that the, uh, uh, after we were in Subic Bay, I think, I forget how long, but the Magwes was taken by the... Uh, Cambodians and our we sent a unit to take we take the Maguez and later uh, Koh Tang Island, which was a debacle. Uh, it was bad because the Marines were not trained, and the Air Force guys that flew them in there didn't understand that element of how to operate with Marines. So Koh Tang was a lot was nasty at the end, and then I hated to leave leave and see that sour note uh, and leave some Marines in on Koh Tang Island. I think 11, 12 left on Koh Tang Island. So. That was sad, yeah. but your Marines were magnificent. Your pilots were magnificent and the Beautiful. operation went as planned contrary to Afghanistan. Yeah. I'm sure it was frustrating all these years later to watch that drawdown in comparison. Yeah. Um, and that, that that's, I'm barely scratching the surface as it relates to that. Before we let you go, I don't want to take up too much time. I did want to ask you a know, 33 year career in the Marines. You know, you, you're that act in 68, you're awarded the Medal of Honor two years later in 1970, but you don't retire until 1995. So you carry that medal with you all those years. What what was that like? What was the weight of carrying that medal with you until you retired? Well, you know, I was, I was fully aware of a Medal of Honor step in everyone around me, but I tell you, I, my belief in my uh, way of doing business is you don't last you don't rest on your your last laurel you work you always reach to looking at your future you want to perform that moment in the future as good as you possibly can so uh, i accepted the fact i was a recipient but i focused on bringing day to day and i wanted to be the best marine i could be regardless of the fact that i'm a medal of honor recipient or not i really emphasized that in my career and i was blessed uh I was the operations officer, either the commanding officer of, uh, from a platoon up to a force. And, you know, my uh, 33 plus years in the Marine Corps was just uh, a moment that I'll never forget. But the, what it exemplified or amplified that moment was dealing with the young Marines and sailors and how magnificent they were, how committed they were, and how they would fight. I love those Marine trigger pullers and those corpsmen took good care of when they went down. So mm -hmm. God bless those trigger puller Marines and God bless the Navy for all the great support. Yes, sir. Sir, it's been an absolute pleasure and an honor, and I'm grateful for you joining us today. Okay. Simplify to you and I'll see you later. Yes, sir. Thank you. Bye. Bye-bye. He's Major General James Livingston. Absolutely incredible. Uh, I'm Brian Jodis. Just honored to do it. That's been this episode of Pick Up the Six Podcast.